Okay, let's hear Psalm 31. In you, Lord, I've taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me, come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Keep me free from the trap that is set before me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. I hate those who cling to worthless idols. As for me, I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your love, for you saw my affliction and knew the anguish of my soul. You have not given me into the hands of the enemy, but have set my feet in a spacious place. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies and the utter contempt of my neighbors and an object of dread to my closest friends, those who see me on the street flee from me. I am forgotten as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. For I hear many whispering terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. But I trust in you, Lord. Eyes, <coughs> excuse me. I say, you are my God. <coughs> my times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hands of mine enemies, from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. Let me not be put to shame, Lord, for I have cried out to you. But let the wicked be put to shame and be silent in the realm of the dead. Let their lying lips be silenced, for with pride and contempt they speak arrogantly against the righteous. How abundant are the good things that you have stored up for those who fear you, that you bestow in the sight of all on those who take refuge in you. In the shelter of your presence, you hide them. You hide them from all human intrigues. You keep them safe in your dwelling from accusing tongues. Praise be to the Lord. For he showed me the wonders of his love when I was in a city under siege. In my alarm, I said, I'm cut off from your sight. Yet, you heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. Love the Lord, all his faithful people. The Lord preserves those who are true to him, but the proud he pays back in full. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. 
This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's good to be back. Um, thank you to, for all of your prayers, your words of encouragement, your gifts, and most of all, the gifts of your presence with us over the past few months. Uh, we've all felt, we've, our entire family has felt so supported and cared for during the season of grief as we've lost our son, Evan. Uh, for those of you who aren't, have, haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Andrew. I serve as a pastor here at WCF. This is the first Sunday kind of back in the saddle, so I look forward to getting to know you over the coming uh, weeks. Please, and for the whole WCF community, please don't hesitate to reach out to me as I'm kind of stepping back into a more routine schedule uh, as of this past week. Our family has just really appreciated all the times that we spent together with you over meals and just uh, and even coming home to a well-tended garden full of new flowers and uh, cuttings as we arrived home last month. So thank you. During the uh, summer months, as Jerry alluded to earlier this, uh, in the service, we have been in the series, if you weren't aware, called uh, Psalms That Make Our Hearts Sing. We've been following roughly the psalms of the lectionary, but of course that has been kind of shuffled out of place because of my absence as well. And thank you to all who have stepped in to the pulpit to share your experiences with the psalms over the past couple of months. Let me offer a very brief but delayed introduction to this series entitled Psalms That Make Our Hearts Sing. There are times when the psalms do make our hearts sing. These are ancient songs. They're not just prayers, spoken prayers but they're meant to be sung. They're ancient songs that help our hearts to sing in worship and praise to God. As we, if you were here with us earlier in the year, we did a prayer practice series, a spiritual practice series, and where we learned that the importance or the value of praying pre-written prayers because they give vocabulary to what we are experiencing. There are many psalms that are easy to connect with. I'm sure you have your favorites. Psalm 8, for me, O Lord, how Lord, how majestic is your name above all the earth. The heavens declare your glory. When you step out in a day like this, it's really easy to sing a song, like, say a psalm like that. Or Psalm 121, last week, Ashley and I were climbing the mountains of Colorado, and you sit there and you look, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from you, Lord, maker of heaven and earth. It's very natural. Or Psalm 91, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High, will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of my, to, my, to my Lord, O oh God, you are my fortress and my strength. It's very natural, those kinds of psalms, right? But what happens when our hearts aren't resounding with praise? Because there are times in our life when these exuberant words of the Psalter seem distant or far off or disconnected with our reality. I must admit that's been a lot of, must admit that's been a lot of my experience over this past few months. For a parent to have to bury their 18-year-old son who died by suicide is like waking up one day and finding yourself living on another planet. There's some things that seem kind of familiar, but so much has changed because of the absence of a loved one. And during the season, the Psalms have been like one of the few things that I have turned to each day. I've been reading five Psalms a day 
just trying to grab onto a nugget or something to resonate, even though most of the time the words just kind of glaze off my eyes or bounce off my heart. But I return to them knowing that God has given these words to help our hearts sing. The Psalms make our hearts sing in ways that we never knew that we thought needed to be sung. And so we turn our attention to a psalm like Psalm 31 today, and you're thinking, well, why did you choose Psalm 31 for like this first message back? It's kind of depressing. I don't know why I chose it. I just, it resonated with me. So, uh, so we're going to do three, three stages, naming our enemies, building, uh, preparing an honesty sandwich, and lastly, compelled speech. So our first challenge when we come to a psalm like this is how do we connect with a psalm? Like the first four verses are easy, right? We can all say those things. But that whole middle section, what's that about? It seems like David, the psalmist, has, is facing enemies who have been seeking to take his life out. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you, that's a, like a daily lived experience for someone to take your life out. You've got people chasing after you, conspiring against you. I don't think that's the reality for most of us. So how do we connect with a psalm like this? How does a psalm like this help our hearts to sing? The psalm falls under the category of a lament that helps where we declare our, uh, where the psalmist seeks, to, seeks help from God dur during a time of crisis, during a time when people are seeking to do him harm. Now, when we think about enemies, let me first say that people who disagree with you are not your enemies. People who disagree with you are not your enemies, most of the time. They're simply just disagreeing with you. And though our media sources often suggest that our enemies might be political or social conservatives or liberals, or they might be Russia or China, or pickup truck driving gun lovers, or tree-hugging climate activists, we're told those are our enemies. But these are all just oversimplified caricatures to get you to click some links so that they can get paid. They aren't really our enemies. See, our enemies do not have to be flesh and blood people seeking to take our lives. And perhaps in our modern world, and for most of us, our enemies might be some things like depression or anxiety or grief. Now, just to be clear, Depression and anxiety and grief aren't things just to be overcome and to be done away with. Sometimes the things that we learn, to we learn to carry these things with the grace of God through life. And the wisdom comes in discerning how these experiences interact with the full and flourishing life that God desires for us until Christ returns. Navigating that between now and then. Depression, anxiety, or grief. These are all things that we experience that often tell us, I'm not enough. I'm, not, I'm unloved. I'm alone in this. That I'm defined by my decisions or by the mistakes that I've made. Or that my grief and my trauma, that, that is who I am. That is only what I can be. And that is always going to be what I can be. Those are the enemies to the life that Jesus invites us to. These whispers may ring really loud in our hearts, 
and in our minds, that he might incapacitate us from moving forward in life and reaching out to others in love in the way that God has designed us for. And don't we find that even in Scripture, we find that Satan, the true enemy of our soul, that sows doubt in the, and distrust among God's people. Now, whether you believe Satan to be showing up as a living creature or, or not, the effect is the same. In Scripture, we see that to Adam and Eve, Satan shows up as a serpent who sows distrust in their hearts towards the goodness of God and of God's creation. To the prophet Elijah, perhaps it shows up in what is pretty much depression, as he feels like a failure as God's prophet. and feels like, what's the point of life? The book of Job is 42 chapters long of this internal dialogue of a man who is struggling to make sense of tremendous loss in his life. Even Jesus had an encounter with Satan who, was tempt, who tempted him to use his own power and to, to save himself from suffering rather than to trust in God's will. Maybe these are the kinds of enemies that we might identify with and face. Psalms, the Psalms like Psalm 31 offer us an encouragement to meet these crises, to meet these difficulties with prayer. Not just because it's a good model to pray or because God is somehow delighted in praying these kinds of prayers or that it's a helpful, mind, a helpful mindfulness exercise, but because the effectiveness of the God that we pray to as we pray words like Psalm 31. Psalms like Psalm 31 give us permission to name the enemies as they are to a full flourishing. And those enemies aren't always people threatening our lives, but they're thoughts and ideas and desires that steal life from us that God intends. And by praying the words of these prayers, and soaking them into our being, it allows our hearts to sing and to speak in those moments when we don't have the mental strength to formulate those prayers for ourselves. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus does by praying Psalm 31, verse 5, as he hangs on the cross. What does he say? Into your hands I commit my spirit. He prays that because he's been praying this psalm over and over again for his entire life. Psalms make his heart sing despite the most brutal suffering that anyone could ever experience. In our household, uh, Julie and I approach making sandwiches a little differently because we're wired differently. Julie is a little bit more intuitive. She'll have an idea for uh, a meal or a sandwich that she likes, usually inspired because she's scrolling on Instagram, like, ooh, I want to eat that. So she'll go to the grocery store, pick up the ingredients, bring it back home, and throw them all together. Me, on the other hand, I'm a little bit more deliberate. I approach sandwich making differently or more deliberately because I like them in a certain order. I don't like her assembling my sandwiches for me because I like the bread and then the spread of mayo and butter, and then you put the protein, and then you put the cheese, and then you put the veggies, and then you put the last piece of bread on top. If it's out of order, I feel like I don't experience the sandwich as it's intended to be experienced. Right? Okay. Can I get an amen? Now, we can all approach our sandwich making differently. 
and we can all personalize our. But I think in prayer, there are certain elements that can be important to include. In Psalm 31, the bread is David's declaration of trust in God's character and love and faithfulness that begins and ends the psalm. And the bread sandwich, this bread sandwiches the toppings or the ingredients of his honest and raw emotions. Take a look. Verses 1 to 5 are this declaration of trust in God as rock. You are my refuge in whom I trust. You are unchanging. And then the, it ends with, uh, like, it ends with his declaring a God's goodness in the past. And an invitation, the final two verses, for all of God's people to trust in God. David is declaring the character and the action of God in history, and that is what is the foundation for his prayer. But if we left just alone, that would be just a, a, a very good prayer, but not full in what he is experiencing. We must pray to be reminded of God's character, but without the toppings of honesty and experience of our reality, it's not just the same. In this psalm, we, when we get to 9 through 15, it describes this very personalized ingredients of the prayer or song sandwich. They demonstrate an appeal to God's mercy in a very present distress and real situation that he is experiencing. In light of the enemies who actually want to physically take out David's life, he is experiencing whole body suffering. Look at all the descriptions of of, of suffering, saying, my eyes grow weak. My soul and body are heavy with grief. My life is consumed by anguish. My years by groaning. Not just a day or two, years of groaning. How many of you have groaned for years? Strength fails, uh, is filled with, uh, fails by affliction. My bones grow weak. I am in contempt. Uh, my neighbors hold me in contempt. I'm forgotten as dead. My life is broken pottery. It's shattered. People whisper about me. There's terror on every side. I feel guilty or judged for wrongdoing. There's people plotting to take my life. I mean, you, you think you have problems in your life? But David lays it all out before God. Everything he is feeling, everything that he is experiencing, everything that people are saying about him, he lays it out before God. And again, we may not have literal enemies seeking to take our lives, but I think we can identify with all the emotions that he's going through. Maybe not all at once, maybe just one of those at a time, but even just one of those is really tough. Some contemporary enemies might be Enemies of contentment in God because of doubt. The enemy of gratitude for what God has given to us when we have envy. The enemy of simplicity because of our covetousness. The enemy to solitude and silence before God because of a busyness and clamoring after things we're told are important in life. David's words in Psalm 31 give us an honest description of the human experience in light of crises, in light of stress, in light of grief. And if our idea of a God is a God that God can't 
or doesn't want to be bothered by our emotional outbursts or these very deep feelings, then maybe our idea of God's love and how much he loves us could be expanded just a little bit more. The living God of Scripture who created the universe can take all of it. There's nothing that you go through, nothing that you experience that God cannot take because he's taken it all the way to the grave and resurrected in his son Jesus. Here we see that David is completely honest with the way that he feels, with his grief, with his stress. He is completely honest with the way that he feels towards his enemies. See, being honest before a holy and loving God is what truly frees us. It's what truly leads us towards healing. This kind of honesty before God frees us from misdirecting our emotions in harmful ways towards those around us, even if they have hurt us. This kind of honesty before God also heals us from allowing the wounds that others have inflicted upon us to define us and to define who we are. You see, God is more than just a heavenly therapist to do positive self-talk with. God is a God who heals. God is a God who acts justly. God is a God who loves. And God is indeed acting in history to restore all things through his son, Jesus. And the way that we experience God's loving character and God's work in our lives is by being completely honest with God in all that we are experiencing. Not by just presenting some projected self upon God that we think God would be impressed with. In crying out to God, we present ourselves fully as we are, honestly, before him. See, a lot of times, I think we treat God like a potential employer. And in an interview, we're trying to impress him with what we say or what, the way we act before God. But God not, wants none of that. He simply wants all of you as you are completely because he loves you completely. And this leads us to this final movement of praying our stress and grief. You know, America takes pride in this idea of free speech, right? So much so it's embedded into the First Amendment of our Constitution. Okay, pop, pop quiz civics time. What's the First Amendment? Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of uh, assembly, and to petition the government. Am I missing anything? And freedom of the press. Oh, yeah, speech and the press kind of go together. So you've got to think about it. They had the Constitution. What happened? What was going on in the collective psyche of America for this to be the First Amendment that James Madison and Jeff Jefferson introduced. Think about that for a moment. After you thought about it. With that historical context in mind, but without that historical context in mind, we've turned free speech into this idea that I can say whatever I want, whenever I want, and no one can tell me what to say, and no one can tell me what I can't say. Which, there's a degree of truth to that. But why mention all this in a sermon? In our message series, is entitled, Psalms That Make Our Hearts Sing. Now, we can interpret that several ways, especially that verb make. What does it mean to be make, to have our hearts be made to sing? How exactly are our hearts made to sing? You see, on one hand, and more positively, 
many psalms do inspire our hearts to sing. We don't feel like it maybe right at the moment, but we read it and we sing it, and we say, oh yeah, that's, that's exactly what I need to say. They direct our attention to God and to the reality, to our reality that helps move us towards faith and trust and praise and worship of God. As we mentioned earlier, they give language to what we are feeling. But on the other hand, and maybe more negatively, especially for us who value individual expression in the first world, we can hear this expression phrase as being compelled to say something that you really don't want to say and being inauthentic. You can't make me say something I don't want to say. I don't feel that right now. And why I don't believe in a God who would make me do something against my will. So we may resist singing. We may resist praying words that don't immediately resonate with what I am feeling at the moment. But let me suggest a third option. Yes, the, the Psalms can make our hearts sing the praises of God that we need to sing and that we want to sing. And yes, the Psalms give us permission to be honest with how we feel about our situation or even about God. But let me offer that Psalms like this also make our hearts sing in ways that we never knew needed to be sung and to be praised. The Psalms compel our speech and song towards a new and greater reality in light of God's light and truth and of love. And of course, the living God of love will never violate our free will. The Christian God will never impose his will over yours. But at the same time, if God is really a God of goodness and of power and is the one who reigns supreme over all things, then God's ways really are the way. So the words that God offers to us in the Psalms are for our ultimate good, even when they seem to be dissonant with our present lived experience. So the compelled speech of the Psalms is actually the only kind of compelled speech that isn't oppressive propaganda. In fact, it's the opposite. It's compelled speech that sets us free to see God and to see our reality more truly as, they are intended to, as it is intended to be. You know, for our family in recent months, never have the Psalms made our hearts sing, at least for me, myself, I'll speak for myself, when I really didn't want to say them or speak them. How does a parent make sense of an 18-year-old son who jumps to his death, when he's on the cusp of entering adulthood with his future before him? How does one say, God, you're good, you love me, you're in control, in light of an event like this? How does one move on? And so I've laid my soul bare, my soul, bared my soul before God with all of my questions, with all of my feelings. The Psalms have given me permission to do so. And I've prayed, admittedly, often half-heartedly about God's goodness, about God's care. But over time, praying and singing these words, and especially praying and singing them nestled in the community of, a, of caring relationships like yours, like the body of Christ surrounding us, I've begun to see God's goodness and God's care in new ways that I never would have seen before this event happened. See, the words seem dissonant to me at first. 
but they begin to resonate in my heart as the reality of God reframes my perception of the events that have happened to me and to my family. I'm not saying that it's all sorted out yet, but the questions I have asked, I find, do not have to be answered. The emotions I feel do not define my value or my hope. See, whatever interpretations I have made about Julia and my parenting or of Evan's mental health, they're interesting, they're worth exploring, but they are not life-defining. Because the living God of Scripture is the one who defines life and holds all things. And one day, we will look back on these very hard times and these traumatic events in light of eternity and in the presence of the living God of love. That's what we hold on to. See, my speech, my prayers, my songs, they may be compelled in one sense, even against my will, but they are compelled by the living God of love and of hope and of peace and of life. And this God has always has our best interests at heart. So, when we come to Psalms like this, we can name our perceived enemies, live or ideas or experiences. We can prepare our honesty sandwiches before God in God's presence. Whether it's hard, as hard as it is, or as good as it is, sandwiched between a declaration of God's character revealed to us in Scripture and especially in the life of his son, Jesus. And perhaps as we do so, we can be compelled, perhaps even propelled, into the goodness of God as we do so. Wherever you find yourself today, before God, in life, may the Psalms be a gift to you in this way now and forevermore.